This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast which is normally a news and talk show about what's new, cool, and we're talking about in the books in the world of books and reading. This is neither new, probably not cool. No, it's cool. I guess it depends on who you ask. And we're deciding that it's worth talking about. It's the Da Vinci Code for the hour and however long we go. The I got very kids first to pick up book nerd movie point. hour. Very first book nerd movie hour. I've been wanting to do something like this, and we thought there's no better place to start with the Da Vinci Code book and movie. I should say this is not ironic. No. I don't know how we... Th- how many we times ever, are we going to say this? can ever prove it's not ironic. This has to be it. This is it. This, this is, is it. This is it. I think we initially we're going to talk more about the movie than I think we're gonna maybe going to end up talking about the movie. Yes. Or we'll talk about more about the book. I don't know. In watching and reading again, mm. what we'll we see thought what happens. didn't hold up quite as well. It's true. I have feelings about all of it. Many Dan Brown feelings, you'll be surprised to know. So I know some of you out there watched um, the movie. It actually goes off Netflix tonight. Oh, midnight. it does? Yes. Oh, that's or maybe so one, So maybe tomorrow night. Okay. I'm not sure. Does that mean if it says expires 8-1, does that the stroke of midnight? I think that means that as of August 1st, it's not available So anymore. tonight. So, yeah. so when you're listening to this, you will no longer be able to You'll have to, to get Netflix it from your, your library. Or, or, Although, or spoiler, you it. might not be missing much. <laughs> Or are you missing everything? Well. Hard to say. <laughs> Hard to say. Uh, before we get into it, we're going to do a first sponsor. All right. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 
and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. So we have this broken up into... I don't know, talking points, the things to get through. The first one is what's it about? (laughs) (laughs) What is it about, Jeff? (laughs) So there's a guy. There's a guy. There's a guy. And when two symbols love each other very much, (laughs) they produce Robert Langdon. Okay. So it's about Robert Langdon, who is a noted symbologist, which is not a real career. Not a thing. (laughs) Not a thing. But he's like Indiana Jones-ish, kind Mm -hmm. of. He wishes he could be Indiana Jones of codes right. and symbols. And Robert Langdon gets woken up in the middle of the night in Paris. If you're unfamiliar, Dan Brown stories always start in the middle of the night. In a European country. An improbable wake up. Uh, the One of the curators or someone special at the Louvre has been found dead and he left a message for them to find Robert Langdon. So Robert Langdon goes off to the Louvre and there are codes to crack along the way. And ultimately it's about the fact that There's a group of people who have been protecting the secret of the Holy Grail, which is that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a child together. Mary Magdalene herself is the Holy Grail, and a sect of the Catholic Church has been trying to intercept the Holy Grail and protect it because they believe that the secret organization, the Priory of Sion, that protects the Grail, is about to reveal this to the world and just upend Christianity. So Robert Langdon has to crack codes to protect the to protect the grail this is it's a grail quest yeah it's i think it'd be interesting to talk about langdon's motivations like what does yeah. robert langdon want he is, just wants to crack the he code. likes to crack that he's not nothing makes him happier than cracking a code mm-hmm. what happens after he cracks the code is sort of immaterial <laughs> yeah it's just for the code itself. yeah the code itself um, he, yeah he's not on the grail quest necessarily it's a lot to do with information security Yes. Because the idea is there's this big secret that's being kept for 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. There's the Knights Templar and the Council of Nicaea and all these people making decisions about who knows what. But it's both about having to transmit information, but also keeping it secret Mm -hmm. at the same time. Right. Which is kind of the the overarching thing that allows all this really dumb (laughs) code-breaking stuff that I find delightful. Yes. But we just have to say... It's dumb. It's a dumb. lot of it is so dumb. It's a fantasy of code breaking. Like, it's a game of throads for crossword puzzles. It, that's yeah, what this is. That's exactly what it is. And he just, like, he wants to crack the codes. And there's codes in everything is, like, is also the point of this. Dan Brown wants you to know how much research he has done. So much research. And you get research. 500 pages worth of, like, and Da Vinci angled the bodies of Jesus and Mary Magdalene because she is in the painting of The Last Supper, apparently. And they are angled against each other in a certain way because it symbolizes this thing. And also Madonna on the Rocks is this other thing. And the Mona Lisa is this other thing. And Leonardo da Vinci was maybe one of the heads of the Priory of Sion. And so was, like, everyone else famous you've ever heard of in art history (laughs) everything means something else and it's all about the secret of the holy i think that's a really good point i mean i i've told you before i think and maybe talk about on the show the most devastating onion article of all time i ever read Mm -hmm. was professor says thing is like another thing but also unlike (laughs) other thing yes which when i was a 
wannabe academic was a decapitation mm-hmm. strike against mm-hmm. everything I had Feel done a to the scene by <laughs> that. that because that's part of the, the pleasure of Langdon is that he sees meaning in everything and layers of meaning, but that's kind of it. Like it's yes. not actionable. It doesn't really help anything. It's like, no, so what that the sacred feminine is on the left hey, hind, did you know? It's a walking. Hey, did you know? And that it all means something else is interesting, but I think we should talk when we get into yes. it about does it add up to anything at all? No, if there think... wasn't the Holy Grail situation, he's a guy saying, you know, the swastika wasn't just Nazis. <laughs> right. And it's like, okay, cool. Cool. I, I think there's what something we like that? about that. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, it's not really about. Yeah, it too has much. that quality that great professors do have of like, he's so into yes. the thing that he knows everything about and he's so lit up by it that it's really fun. Or he's lit up by it on the page. We'll talk mm-hmm. about Tom Hanks later. But. Robert Langdon loves his subject and it's so fun to be that like just deep in with somebody, but also I don't want to go to a dinner party with this guy or like go on a Tinder date with Robert Langdon. Who's like, you know, this thing that you're ordering, (laughs) this history. That's right. It was actually, um, a pagan, you know, pork chops were pagan. Pork chops were pagan. Of course they were. Um, in the book, there's an explicit reference that he's described as the Harrison Jones, uh, oh, Harrison, Harrison Jones, Indiana Jones <laughs> mm. of the art world. Oh. And I've made the joke that he's a Rick Steves right. who thinks he's an Indiana. I Jones. I think that's pretty close. And he's more of an he's more he's more of a Rick Steves with something to do. Yeah, but he's also described in the book, at least, as intriguing, and he has yeah. scholarly allure. Like the book opens, and he's giving this talk, and he's right. super embarrassed because in the introduction to the talk, the woman who's introducing him points out that he was just nominated by some Boston, Boston magazine, magazine as like one of the most intriguing bachelors, and like. The Robert Langdon on the page is real different from the Robert mm. Langdon on the screen. And that, I mean, we'll get to all of my feelings about that. Well, and I think it's also important to talk about when we're talking about the Dan Brown phenomenon. And mm-hmm. it's Da Vinci Code after, and then sort of Angels and Demons get sort of grandfathered in because it includes Langdon. Like mm-hmm. he, Dan Brown had written The Digital Fortress and something else that are completely different stuff. It's remarkable how secondary Langdon is, his character to the story. He has abilities that become useful, but really he's just sort of a, a medium through which Dan Brown's own stuff oh, is yeah. flowing. Langdon right? like, is totally a Dan Brown avatar. Yeah. And it's just, here's everything that I have ever learned about this subject. And Da Vinci Code was such a big deal. It came out in what, 2003? The movie came that. out in 2006. Oh, the movie 2006, yeah. It was several um, years before. And the movie came pretty quick yeah, after. Yeah, and the book was a huge deal because mm-hmm. this idea that Jesus and Mary Magdalene might have had a relationship, that Jesus was married and had a child, and that there's all these secrets that could explain the idea of Jesus's divinity. It was really incendiary at the yes. time. The Catholic Church got super upset about it. You can still Google your way to like lots of statements from lots of Catholic officials about the policies and like the stance that they had, the official reaction to the Da Vinci Code. It was a huge, huge deal. And the book was in hardcover for like six like and still a half in years. Yeah. You can't get a paperback. It's crazy. It, it was, I think you can't understate the phenomenon. There. No. It was just enormous and people were captivated by it. I, my first read of the Da Vinci Code was over the summer in college. I think the year it came out and a friend of my mom's asked if I had read it yet and I hadn't and she loaned it to me and I started and I stayed up all night reading. And they're just these they're capers. Mm. But I don't think that they're as exciting if, this, if the subject matter isn't what it is. Yeah. I'm just like, there's this code to be cracked and it's about something that's been hiding in plain sight. All along. It's not your like standard thriller. Yeah, the MacGuffin is the MacGuffin in 
kind of movie parlance is the thing that people are trying to go after mm-hmm. that incites all of the action. The MacGuffin here is the Holy Grail. Very good MacGuffin. Right. But the pleasure and fun and interest of the book actually isn't the Holy Grail. No. The when the book is at the best, when the movie is at its best, is we're looking at a painting and looking for clues. Mm-hmm. That is the white hot center of this. And everything else that isn't that isn't great. Yeah. It's but just, that is so much fun that I still find myself really having a good time with the thing is, as a whole. It's more fun than just reading a book of like 78 facts yeah. you didn't it know could be about. a bathroom book. Things that are hidden yes. in art history. It could right? be a yeah, bathroom it book. Totally, and so Robert Langdon serves that purpose yeah. of like everybody is standing in front of the Mona Lisa. He's the one who can be like, well, this is the thing. Right. Here's the thing you didn't know about the Mona Lisa, and now you know, and then you go along in the caper and you learn something else about like the original rose line and what Rosalind Chapel is named for and the Knights Templar and that Alexander Pope interred some knight somewhere right. yeah. <laughs> along the way. It's, it's just, like if Sherlock Holmes was a docent at the museum you right. go to. That's what you would get. Yeah, the idea that... Langdon is also supposed to be intriguing and alluring. I think it's just wishful and fulfillment on Dan Brown's part. I mean, it's also a fundamental misunderstanding, or I don't know if it's a misunderstanding, but not realizing that it doesn't matter. Yeah, that no. Langdon's character does not matter. And the movie tries to give him a little more, like he's, he, they, they dial up the claustrophobia, mm-hmm. they dial up that when he was seven, he was in a well, like, but it kind of doesn't matter. It doesn't which matter. makes it seem like Tom Hanks would have been good casting for it because you just need someone that you kind of trust, that you right. like watching, can play smart, but also thinking and not sure what's going to happen very well. Ultimately, I'm not sure if... I don't think T- Hanks is a disaster. I don't think it's like, oh my God, I can't see anybody mm-hmm. else. I definitely can see other... But we should get that into a moment. But like, mm-hmm. I think the thing was like, it is about that there is the Holy Grail, Mary Magdalene was Jesus' wife. There are living ancestors of Jesus Christ and documents that could prove it. Right. And that would be a problem. Yes. All of that, even if it were true, I take great issue with, <laughs> but I don't care because right. the suspension of disbelief you have to do here is you have to do suspension of disbelief just like you have to do for Star Wars. Right. In a, it's not the same kind, but you have to do just as much. Yeah. The I, think. In, I think the internal logic is strong. Like yeah. the internal logic of the story that this would be a problem for the Catholic Church right. and that the Catholic Church is large and organized and maybe they did have they did conspire to keep all of this information secret and that they tried to destroy mm-hmm. it and that there would be an organization of people also trying to protect the information and shepherd it along for two thousand years. But like that the shepherding along of the information had to include like ritual sex acts. And like people in Rome, I mean, why not doing <laughs> the worship of the sacred feminine? Like, uh-huh. oh, that's a that's a critical thing about Robert Langdon yes. is like he's obsessed with the worship of the sacred feminine and like goddess symbols, but also like the least likely guy to sit. There's like an it's like an almost feminism to the way that yeah, he talks about it. Sometimes it is. It's a very like a paint by numbers feels like a pun, but it's almost like. It's just something people were hiding. It wasn't having any value in itself. It's like mm. the secret feminine is this thing that's being right. hiding. I don't like things to be hidden. Yeah. So on and so forth. But I think we covered that's what it was about. Let's talk about the cast oh, of the movie. Oh, boy. Um, Tom Hanks plays Robert Langdon. Uh, let's see. Who else? Uh, Ian McKellen plays Lee Teabing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sophie Neveu is played by Audrey Tattoo. And then um, Fosh is played by, oh, what's his Jean name? Jean Reno. Jean Reno. I couldn't read mm-hmm. Beyond that, is there anybody else we would recognize in the cast? No. No. Let's start with... Oh, no, wait. Um, Paul Bettany plays Silas. Oh, Paul Bettany plays Silas. Oh, and Alfred Molina. Oh, right. Oh, we forgot that whole subplot. 
of the Opus Dei. <laughs> right. All it's a fringe of way. a fringe. Right. There's yeah. Opus Dei, which is a fringe Catholic organization yeah. that involves like some Who is the antagonist, stuff. I think? The, yes, the, the he's very the specific villain. antagonist. He's in the opening scene of the book. Yeah. This like tall albino. I have many questions about like why does the villain no. have to be and an he's, albino? He's, he's a Spanish member of Opus Dei who's been taken under the wing by Alfred Molina's yes. character Bishop. Yes, Garosa. Yeah, Aaron Garosa. Another rose, God. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you're right. And so that that's the antagonist. So we'll get that to the minute. I think, okay, so let's start. Who was, who's the best character? Not the most important. Who's the best cast character in the movie? Ian McKellen. It's, it's not Bar even close. none. Right? We talked about in the car, so I, I was going to ask you this question anyway, but we both sort of, it yeah. was so obvious. We couldn't save it. <laughs> McKellen brings to T-Bing, who's not a different character. I mean, it's the same character, but mm-hmm. portrayed differently. He's more of a portly, red-haired. Yeah. McKellen... Is plays him with crutches. Oh, I guess the, he the has character crutches has crutches, the book, yeah. but he plays him more as an old actor, Ox slash Oxford right. Don, uh-huh. and he's obsessed with. He's been looking for the Holy Grail for his whole life. Mm-hmm. I guess spoiler alert at this point. Yeah, I mean, and he becomes the one that's pulling all the strings. Yeah, and he wants to expose to the world that the Holy Grail exists, mm-hmm. show the hypocrisy of the church. And this will make things better because of reasons. Yeah, he thinks it's going to end oppression. Yeah, end oppression, which of I mean, how is a great yeah, question? Sure, because reasons. Um, but he's having so much fun. He's the only character in the movie that you sort of enjoy for his yeah. own sake. He gets the best lines. Mm-hmm. He's having he has the a most real fun. flourish. We miss him when he's off the yep. stage. That's always my mm-hmm. one, my great um, English professor James Crowther says. You know, you can tell a great character when when they're not on the stage or they're not on the page. And you, you miss wonder, them. yeah, Don Quixote. Hamlet, Lionel Teabing are those kinds of characters that you met. I think Tattoo's fine. She's fine. She's fine. She doesn't there's, have much to do. There's not much to it's do. Fine. If you got the, a better, someone better in that role, what would they do differently? Right. I don't. She just doesn't have much. Yeah, to do. Julie Delpy wanted to play that role. Yeah, like I, could see I that. went deep into casting rumors in honor of our beloved Rewatchables yeah. podcast. That's the thing that they do, and I could see her being really good. Apparently, Kate Beckinsale was considered, and I don't know. About that, I think Audrey Tattoo is the right about of like she looks thoughtful. Yeah, I believe that she's a cryptologist. Do it's you, fine. She doesn't even do that much. She does less in the movie than she does in the book. That's it's true. like the, the cryptology. Well, that's a screenwriter problem. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, in terms yeah, yeah. Of the, Part of the problem with her character not being that interesting is the part isn't that yeah, interesting. This, oh, and by the way, this book and movie for sure do not pass the Bechdel test. No. Even though it's about the sacred feminine, like that's the level of feminism <laughs> right. we're at yeah, right now. Right. Like, the, the men are going to save feminism. Women are sacred. <laughs> right. Got it? They also don't know anything. <laughs> right. they gotta expl- I mean, the man's in the book, the mansplaining section oh. of Hanks and McKellen is a Chateau Valette is yeah. a real slog. Our, uh, our coworker, Jen, and I watched the movie together this week, and she had never seen it before. She'd mm-hmm. read the book, but like it's been long enough that she didn't remember any of it. And we were watching it together, just like, oh man, okay, yeah, the women don't have much to do here. And then we started dreaming of a gender bent like queer let's do that in da vinci code i have yeah. some notes okay. on that too okay great hanks so bad i find him so bad what's bad my there, what's he's, bad about it's like he goes dead behind the eyes in this movie tom hanks is usually so charming yeah. he has good face like i don't know maybe it's that there's no emotion in what's happening he has he's no just edge. yeah there's no None. edge that's the exact sentence i said to jen last yeah. night like tom hanks has no edge here there's no emotion in what Robert Langdon has to do, and I think Tom Hanks needs that. Mm-hmm. Like he's a good actor when he has a feeling to put on his face. But my notes just say Tom Hanks is ungood, and I went I went looking at um, 
casting. And when mm-hmm. I Googled Tom Hanks casting Robert Langdon, I found in the first page of Google results a piece called Hollywood's Top Ten Casting Mistakes, and it was Tom Hanks as yeah, Robert he's Langdon's not, number one. He's not good. I don't know that he's – for my taste, he's not bad. I always find in my movie going experience, Tom Hanks is usually a plus. Mm-hmm. Like in a movie, I'm I like, agree. Hanks is one of the good things yeah, about yeah. it. In this movie, he's at best – Neutral. Yeah. He's at best just sort of carrying water. He doesn't, the book does move along at like a great pace and you yeah. feel the stakes and you can feel them like working to crack these codes together. And I think some of this is the challenge of translating this kind of book mm-hmm. to the screen of like on the page, you get to be in Robert Langdon's head of like, right. what's he thinking about? How is he cracking this code? What are the like desk drawers that his brain is flipping mm-hmm. open? And that's hard to do on screen. And Tom Hanks, I think, did not have, maybe he didn't have good direction about like, what is it supposed to? I don't think he to, did get good direction. Ron Howard's a director who yeah. was a capable director, but they didn't know what to do with Langdon as a character because mm-hmm. he's not Indiana Jones. He's not like he's not swaggery. He's not swaggery. He's not super physical. Indiana Jones has a sort of sincere desire to discover these things and like they're actual objects, and you bring them out into the world. And he's droll, and he is. Sexy as all get out. As all get out. And he's got girlfriends, Mm -hmm. and the whole thing is much more swashbuckling. So it's a larger than life character. And Hanks has none of that. And he gets dragged into this. And because of the way he's brought into it, his motivation is actually a little unclear beyond that he likes, does he want to save Audrey Tattoo? Does he want to find Is he just helping because he's nice? He, he wants to stay out of jail for a while. Right. I mean, It would be great to not get convicted of murder so he's tonight. Very, he, he's, unless he's breaking a code, he's weirdly passive about what he wants and yeah. what his story and he's is he's just here. like along for the ride. Yeah. There's, just not, there's just nothing going on there. Like There's no chemistry, no. like sexual or otherwise, with no. any of the characters, or with any of the characters and Tom Hanks. Like Ian McKellen brings it to everybody and those scenes are fun to watch. But Hanks is just like, it doesn't feel like he actually believes he's in danger on the screen. Like they're flying across the country. All of a sudden they've been in, they've like, they get shot at, they're in somebody's plane. They reroute from Zurich to London. They have to sneak off. Like Mm -hmm. there's all of these like capery secret things that are happening. And he is in legit danger of like, he's either going to get killed or he's going to get arrested for the murder of the guy at the Louvre. And he just doesn't look that scared. It's funny because like in the movie, you think about like there, there are some fit, there's a car chase and there's blah, blah, blah. Like the things Hanks does is very small. Like he kicks a shell casing into a van scene. Mm -hmm. He, it's like he kicks trash and he throws (laughs) the cryptex. It's all very like, (laughs) it's pantomime action hero stuff without, I would have. I think in hindsight now, it might have made sense to make him jokier, mm, like mm-hmm. not not goofy jokey, but, but really, little... he's a smart, educated yeah. guy who knows a lot about language. Give him a little. He should be funny. Callen, joie de vivre, some quips, a little, you know, like screwball comedy mm-hmm. dialogue with tattoo. I, I think it's a mistake. The book has them have a kiss at the end. I think it's a horrible mistake. Oh, I agree. I, I hate it. I, I think that's one thing the movie did better is. It's a daughterly kind of thing. Yeah, there's a significant sense. age gap there. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot a lot more sense, and maybe make it you know kind of a buddy cop mm, situation mm-hmm. dynamic where she gets to do more, yeah. and they 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 tussle. It's a lot of Langdon explaining to Tattoo things she doesn't know, mm-hmm. and were kept from her by her grandfather who's in charge of keeping right. all this stuff. So it doesn't lend itself to them being equals because she doesn't know anything. Yeah, she so knows. She's got she's got nothing to do, and she's. 
in very new grief because yes. her grandfather has died. Because and it's complicated oh, yeah. because they haven't seen each other in a Right. I don't think we've mentioned she's a cryptologist, but she's also the granddaughter of the guy from the Louvre who was killed, and he spent her childhood teaching her how to crack codes because someday mm-hmm. when he was dead, she would be the keeper of the Holy Grail. She just doesn't know it. All she knows is that she hasn't talked to him since she saw him doing a weird sex ritual. <laughs> like, As you know, <laughs> it's awkward at dinner after that. Right. For a movie and a book that's about like – that's so tied to the intersection of sexuality and the sacred. Like sex is such a bad word in this. Yeah. Like Robert Langdon, Tom Hanks, if you told me it was like a Ken doll under there, I would believe you. There's nothing sexual in any of these. And then she's scarred when she's a young woman by seeing her grandfather do this. So she's probably terrified. Yeah. Like I, you just, it doesn't is she work. A virgin, <laughs> maybe. It's a, is Robert a, Langdon a, a, a virgin? Really good chance. Yeah, Bill Paxton. Oh, Bill Paxton is in my notes. I don't yeah. know why I'm saying that right now, but um, Tom Hanks just. I think normally it works in his favor that he reads like he doesn't read on film as sexy, right? And he's not swashbuckling, but he's like very sincere. He can play romantic lead. He's, but a he's a not good. Sexy. He's a good boyfriend. Yeah, right. Tom Hanks is a good boyfriend. Mm. Robert Langdon, like. There's none of that. Like the character isn't supposed to be swaggery. There is no swashbuckling, but there's also like the weird thing with the kiss and that we're supposed yeah, to believe I, that there's some kind of sexual something totally unnecessary. brewing between the two. It's totally unnecessary. And also I think it's telling like if Tom Hanks is the Dan Brown avatar here, like what we have is a story about a guy who all he has to do is be good at cracking codes and know right. a lot of stuff yeah, that yeah. no one else it's knows. It's a nerd fantasy, right? If I'm yeah. good enough at this thing no one actually cares about in the yeah. right situation, right. then I'll get the ladies. The cute girl will kiss yeah. me in the end anyway. But no. Doesn't work. There's also, there's a choice they make in the movie where he dresses in this all black. Mm-hmm. He's dressed like a priest. He is, and, and it doesn't fit. The only thing fit. he's saving is the color of his hair. The whole, his demeanor is very like stiff. Mm-hmm. And I think there maybe are going for professorial, but it comes off as like celibate, like, yeah, like yeah, emotionally yeah. and right. physically celibate. <laughs> in in all the ways. Yeah. yeah, it's very ascetic and it's like in its own way. And it's not true to the character. Robert Langdon wears Harris tweeds. Yeah, it's not. A more professorial look. So I don't know. You had you had some other casting ideas. Yeah. If, could we do this better? Do, let's Let's ask this. Is it the character or the actor or both? I think it's both. You think it's both? It's not a great character yeah. to be played, but I don't think Tom Hanks was the right choice. But you think it's possible to have done better? Yes. Okay. Bill Paxton was the first now, choice, tell me about allegedly. That. I would never have thought of that. I wouldn't have thought of it either, and I think he would be too, like... He's a good old boy. Yeah. He plays Texans and like not, nothing against right. Texans, but, but it's just that's not, not this. Right. And I don't think that's it. Russell Crowe is also in the running. I think that's too much. Like Russell Crowe just has like his physical presence has swagger. Yeah. What about to if he it? did like a beautiful mind Russell Crowe situation? Maybe. Maybe. Ray Fines. I think Ray Fines might have oh. close to the right amount of edge. Oh. He has some edge. He's dark. He's a sharper profile. Mm-hmm. Just like in general, he seems... You buy him as a really smart guy. The intensity guy. is like just something you right get with there. the yeah. That's a really interesting I think one. that's interesting too. Now the next two, I was like, why would anyone think about casting these men in this okay. movie? And I think it's only because they expected the movie to be a really big deal oh, because the book was a really Tom big Cruise. deal. Hugh Jackman? No. And George Clooney, no, too who's way too pretty. No, too good looking. And Clooney can't help but be charming. And Robert Langdon is no. like not If you could get all. a little of that George Clooney special sauce onto just somebody else. Yeah. Like just a sprinkle a of the Clooney. A little rat pack. Right. A little a, more Just a little pack. something. Pierce Brosnan also wanted no, to play it. I say, I say no to that. I do think I have some, I have some ideas. What about, okay, what's your idea? I think Mark Ruffalo could have do it. Like nerdy. 
a little bit sexy in that like dad then. way. Would have been too young then, but if we did it now. Jen suggested Tom Hiddleston, which I can kind mm, of see. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And my money's on Paul Sparks, who was on Boardwalk Empire. Oh, oh. He was one of the guys. He had a weird laugh on Boardwalk Empire. And then he was on a couple seasons of Game of Game of Thrones, House of Cards. He was on a couple seasons of House of Cards as the mm. novelist that was like hanging out with Claire and whatever Kevin Spacey's character's name was. Little sexy, like just a little, but also very academic looking. And he's playing a restaurant manager on the Sweet Bitter TV mm. show right now. He's great. I think he could do this it. This is a crucial casting question for me, for you, about mm-hmm. this. Is, is Langdon supposed to read? He clearly is educated and smart, mm-hmm. but he's supposed to read that way. Yeah. Like, is he supposed to read as like, say, Hiddleston, Hiddleston comes across as smart. Yeah. He just does. I think he's supposed Fines, to. Fane, uh, Ray Fiennes comes across as smart. Hanks is more of a Oh, dad. shucks. Yeah. He's more of a dad. Because if you go that way, you could go and using you could go Chris Evans and mm. a contemporary person. If you wanted a little more fidgety manic savant, you go like Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, Robert like Downey that. Jr., like that's too much edge. Too much edge. I think. The other one that I was thinking about and was wondering about a little bit is Idris Elba. Hmm. Could you go that way? I think my initial maybe... thought for him was Fosh. Like in my recasting, yeah, make a good fashion. Like, what about in the lead? He's big. He's mm-hmm. just a physical. He's a presence. presence. Yeah, I think like it's clear from the book that Dan Brown wants us to think Langdon is sexy. Like, there's something there. He's supposed to be good looking, but not classically good looking. How do you cast that? <laughs> right. And I think like academic ish. Like, I was just thinking, who could play a yeah. like late forties ish professor? Damon? Maybe, maybe Damon. But he's like Matt Damon can't help but like be a little smug, and I don't think Robert Langdon is smug. I w- actually, frankly, I would take Langdon in any edition. I mean, I would mm-hmm. take more of just any care. Like if he's a little smug, oh sure, I would be okay with just that. Anything actually. have a just personality a little bit more, and like then he gets put in his place a little bit when he mm-hmm. makes some mistakes. Like that would be interesting. I mean, the Damon of like, I mean, the Martian is Robert Langdon in space. <laughs> You're right. right. But a plants. Robert Langdon, but plants. <laughs> Robert Langdon with potatoes. <laughs> yeah, it's in Robert space. Plant Langdon in space. <laughs> so it's kind of, you have to believe them as they can't be so capable right. that you know nothing bad. They have to be yeah. vulnerable in some right. way. I think there Hanks has to be. brings that. Damon brings that. I don't know that Idris Elba brings that. No. I don't know that uh, Ray Fiennes brings mm-hmm. that. I'm just not sure. Yeah, Ray Fiennes, I think, comes off as just so competent. Yeah. Like you're in good hands. Ray Fiennes right. has got gotcha. you. Anyone that could play James Bond, which I think. Ray Fiennes could have played mm-hmm. at some point is a little too, because part of it is that Langdon's getting swept into police crap yeah. that he knows nothing about. Yeah, he's about. like, what's going to happen? Yeah. Who knows? I think one of the real downfalls of the movie is that Sophie gets so little, so little. to do. Like yeah. in the book, she has the sort of Hermione problem mm-hmm. where they're they're like in a sticky situation and it's Sophie who figures out the thing that they need to get out of the sticky situation. Or she's the one who picks up the gun when somebody needs to pick up a gun and she just does not get to shine at all. What is she? She does that. She decodes the Fibonacci sequence. Mm-hmm. Do you remember her kicking in for anything else? I don't, not in the movie. It's not remarkable. In the book, I'm, now they're blurred. So, mm-hmm. boy, I can't remember what else does she get to do. I remember, as I was rereading the book last week, I had enough moments. There were enough moments of Sophie, like, kind of saving the day. That I was like, oh, she's Hermione. I mean, like, she knew what a cryptex was in the right. book where Langdon had never seen one before. Right. And he, but that that was it. She's like, I know how this works, but then I'm done. You have to figure it out. Yeah. And one of the great unintentional 
comedy moments of the movie is him going, I've never met a girl who knew that I much wrote down about the same thing. And that was like a come online. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, baby, what's your sign? <laughs> right. Incredible Want to decode my cryptics. Any other cast thoughts? I thought Molina was good. Yeah, in that he's role. good. I like him in that kind of role. He plays the exact, almost the same character in Chocolat. Mm-hmm. He plays like kind of the stuffy. Oh, well, more he has a stuffy, lot of gravitas. Mur- murderous, but affable. Murderous, but affable. <laughs> um, which is interesting. I think Fosh was good. The movie gave Fosh a little more conflict. Which was like, um, I have down on my on our, on our list, like who wish we had more of or less mm. of. I would have taken more Fosh and less of Remy, less of Vernet. Like yeah. there's all these ancillary like French bureaucrats like in the way boil some of those down make you know a true investigator who's figuring stuff out as we're figuring stuff out he kind of goes from one side to the other which is nice he's a great presence I would have liked a little bit more of him yeah I like the nun in Saint Soul Peace who's mm-hmm. trying to foil Bettany yeah I would like her a little bit more of like on the Priory side because mm-hmm. we learned there's this whole Priory at the end right. but where were they? Yeah, they're supposed to protect Sophie like, and she's at sea like running around right. getting shot this at like where were is, you? Like, there's so much in the book that you know that you yeah. can't possibly know, know. in a, even a two and a half hour movie which that's movie. my first question is why <laughs> is this movie so long? Jean Reno I thought was perfectly cast as Fash great. and I read later that Dan Brown said somewhere that he wrote Fash with Jean Reno in mind that. which is perfect he is just perfectly cast Dan Brown would have cast as Langdon Besides Dan Brown. (laughs) It's a great question. Mm. I was thinking um, if we had to update, Christoph Waltz as Vernet in the bank would have been fun to watch. And uh, I thought Paul Bettany was... Christoph Waltz as T-Bing would be awesome. Oh, that would be really fun too. Yeah. And Paul Bettany as Silas is good. And it's hard to imagine who else could play that. He was good. And he didn't need to be the albino. Yeah. He doesn't need to be albino. There's all this obsessing about him being albino in the book. Like, I think it's just a mechanism to make him even more different. gaunt intense right. dude that everything that like the albino is supposed to stand for you get with Ben. Yeah, you, and he's he does it really well. Um the casting stuff I found online said that Christopher Eccleston was also considered oh. and he got to play a weirdo cult member on the leftovers well, and did it really well. Hmm. But I could have seen him as Silas, but Paul Bettany I think is like pitch perfect. That's I great. wondered about Bettany as Langdon in a different version of huh, this movie. Maybe. He's good looking but not like hunky mm-hmm. it's not distracting yeah he seems smart but also vulnerable you could kind of see that he mm-hmm. was young at this point in his career yeah he was too young now he could probably do it i think and has a weird kind of like he plays vision in avenger mm-hmm. so maybe i'm thinking like he has a kind of a guarded yeah aspect and like a slightly awkward physicality yeah, yeah but uh, but brings a little more just to the table in that where Hanks, I think is, I think Hanks seemed uncomfortable. Yeah. Like he wasn't doing well, something yeah, like, he naturally was doing. He, he looked uncomfortable. He's not me. an action hero. No. He's not an action actor. Like Tom Hanks is an actor from the neck up. Mm. Like that's where all the Tom Hanks goodness happens in films. And or, this is a like, or it's big and it's real big and yeah. physical. And he's a comedian. Yeah. This is, he, he felt like he was, chained up a mm-hmm. little bit to some Yeah, degree. it's very strange. Like, I think that's a tough needle for him to thread yeah. that, like, Langdon is just so cerebral and he's in these, like, physically perilous situations and he doesn't know what to do and it's hard to convey that, yeah. like, what do I do with my body here? Tom Hanks is good as Tom Hanks, like mm-hmm. some close version of him, or he's acting as, like, Forrest Gump or, like, he really has a part to play. This is, you're not Tom Hanks, but you're also... Not something else. Right, yeah. Weirdly. It's strange. Strange. Okay, let's do another sponsor, and then we're going to get into our best moments, our worst moments, what the book does better, movie does better, quibbles, questions, (laughs) uh, other things like that. All right. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. 
No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. All right. Best and worst. Let's do worst first. Okay. Because we do like this property. We right? do. We do like this we property. We do. I have great memories of the Da Vinci Code and I just, I'm loyal Worst moments. What do you have? Mm. <sighs> Book yeah. or movie? Book or movie? You know, I don't love the endings of either of no. them. <laughs> Hard end. Tough to end this. Do you mean Sophie and Hanks or do you mean the kneeling at the Louvre? All of it? All of it. All of it. Like the kneeling at the Louvre is so much cheesier on film. It is. Than it comes across. Kneeling, kneeling in any situation is a tough spot. It's a nice idea. Nice idea. You're going to look like a weirdo yeah. if you're doing it. The the like romantic anything between them, I hate like if that can count as a moment at all. Mm-hmm. It's like in the book, it comes out of nowhere. There's like no to me there was no flirting on the page. There's nothing. And then 5 pages before the end, Robert Langdon's like, "Hey, I've got a hotel room in Florence next week if you want to like, come." That's pretty presumptuous. Like, yeah, it is. Yeah. No one wants this. And then he realizes he's been presumptuous and she says, "Well, I'll come see you. I'll I'll come hang out as long as we don't do history or churches or movie, any codes." And, and he's movie, like, like, "What else is there to do?" And she oh, gives him a knowing God. look. So like, bad. "Really? No." And then in the movie, in the movie the note was in the book they kiss, but we're not doing that. Right. That was the note. Because they're like, 
awkwardly hugging and then they look at each other and then Hank kisses her on the forehead. Right, yeah. I'm Jen like, was what like, this? and I was telling Jen, like, one of the segments that we had originally planned for this episode is called Can Robert Langdon Get It? And she was like, no one who can get it is kissing the girl on the forehead at the end of this or movie. What, or is that supposed to be, do- like, the, the energy is like, the energy weird. is super confused because it should energy. be, it should be like siblingish or father daughter or, or like mentor mentee. Right. Or just even like colleagues who like each other yeah. and went through a perilous thing. Like they've only known each Comrades other for 24 hours. Right. Like this whole thing happens yeah. in one day. Right. Like they just have a really long night. That's not long enough to fall in love with somebody, especially when you're busy cracking codes. Totally. I mean, yeah, that that's a tough one. That one is tough. In the movie, I hated the, she touches his head oh, and maybe yes. heals him because she's magic diet Jesus Ish, or something. Right? Or it just, it just helps him focus. That, that I don't doesn't know. Work. That doesn't work one bit. It's, I think the plane thing yeah. where they hide in the wheel, uh-huh. it feels like it's supposed to be clever. I'm like, they just got out of the plane and got in the car before the cops came. Right. That's yeah, and it's it comes off better I think in the book than the movie that moment does. But it's you know still why? Because you great. don't pick, you can't right. picture it right. There's way more punching in the movie way than there more. is in the book. The movie is like violent in some ways yes. that were surprising to me, having not seen it in probably a decade. I didn't care for that. The Silas, the albino monk, like self-flagellation stuff. Yeah, the albino stuff othering is, stuff is not cool. And it's a little fetishized on yes. film. Like there's a lot more of his like bloody back and all the stuff than the it. The discipline and the right, color. Right, than it needs to be thing. at all. Yeah. Um, that I didn't love. It's just, it's just uncomfortable. And unnecessary. Like it's enough that he's a zealot. Right. Like we don't need to Yeah, he doesn't also, also need to be a six a, foot six albino. masochist right. at the same time. I think we kind of buy that. Yeah, that's not great. I, I don't remember in the book. Do we talk about his eidetic memory in the book? Yeah, you get that in every I Robert Langdon this. book. Why does this have to be? He's he's. This is a specialty. Right. You don't need to be. You don't have to have superpower. Right. It's like you you can't remember all the things from your specialty without an right. eidetic memory. Oh, and I hated the way that they sort of portray that in the film of like he's looking at a code and then this. Oh, so let's just no. can, the special effects in this movie are they can go to represent Langdon thinking was a directorial problem. Yes, it was a tough spot. Right. How do we show him looking at the yeah. possibilities of all the combinations of these letters or of all of these numbers? But then there's all the stuff where like while he's mansplaining in order to not just have the camera on him mansplaining for 90 seconds they mm-hmm. overlay like images of knights and ladies and like people keeping secrets and what would these rituals be like and sort of you know like it's wavy and then you can see the inter like intersection piece from the past and i don't think there's a great smooth way to do that on no. film but it's not it's not good um other things that don't age very well Super white cast for something Super that's about white. the real history of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Maybe mention he wasn't white. Right. You know? Right. New, in the 2019 version of the Da Vinci Code, it's like, spoiler, yeah, Jesus spoiler. was brown. Jesus is brown. Like, in, I think in a different version of this, Sophie maybe being ambiguously ethnic would be interesting mm-hmm. and played differently. Because, like, basically the history of the Holy Grail picks up in France. Yes. Right? <laughs> like, we've, in, well, they mentioned Turkey. But right. And all the people here are, are all white. So that's something you definitely could have done differently. I think there should be... Forget about Langdon, the character, but mm-hmm. Langdon as the figure, the, yeah. char- the character that serves a purpose, who has these problems. What if that was a woman? Mm-hmm. Better? Mm-hmm. Different? I think better. Um, 
more fun to watch a woman explain a bunch of things on yeah. screen, especially when it's so much explaining and this man's a sacred feminine stuff. A sacred fe- right, like this it. should be a female scholar. Yeah, Robert should Langdon should have been a female scholar. Jen and I were talking about Roberta Langdon. Like, who sure. would play Roberta Langdon? And it can still be like Sophie can still be a woman character. Also, you could get like a, a little queered version of it. Sure. I think would be fun. Carrie Coons from who was also in The Leftovers. I think mm. she. Would be great. You she know, Chastain. Uh, Ooh, I pick Chastain oh, for yes. everything. Yeah. She got a lot of swagger, but she can dial it down, yeah. I think. Um, I thought Vera Farmiga would be fun to watch in this. Yeah, she'd be good to watch in that. A too. little like serious face. The she Tom reads Hanks smart... version is Julia Roberts, and it doesn't work. Yeah. So I like, don't think that works I either. think that, no, no, because the casting challenge then with women actors is if you're too pretty, you don't read as smart on screen. So they need yeah. to be like beautiful, good looking enough to be appealing to mm. whoever it is that they're being cast alongside, but not Julia Roberts level of like distracting beauty or yeah. like Scarlett Johansson or somebody that you're just looking at. I them. was thinking Jennifer Lawrence is too young now, but she has a nice kind of like furrowed browed kind of angry yeah, thing. Yeah, but yeah, I think yeah. she may be a little mm. too I think she's too pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, to do what the character is supposed to do. Yeah. You could write the character differently. You could, or she could be the, um, she could be the cryptologist. Yeah. Fosh as a woman would be interesting mm-hmm. too. Angry lady police yeah. officer. And because the, the the reality is the as the, the Catholic. I mean, the book and the movie is especially careful not to make the Catholic Church mm-hmm. the bad guy. It's this subset. Right. A sec, It's an offshoot of a subset right. of a of a fringe group <laughs> that's doing these really bad things, yeah. and they're all dudes. They are all dudes, and they're all white dudes, which is not necessarily the case in Catholic Church. You can right. have African priests and mm-hmm. things like that, but it is dudes. So it would be interesting to have if the if the real if the struggle writ large of the movie is reinserting the story of women into the church. It's weird that it's, you know, all the chess players are dudes yeah. and the pawn is this one woman who doesn't, doesn't get know much anything. To do. Yeah. I think if you're writing this book in 2019 and you're trying to sell it to an agent, you're selling yeah. it as like a woman is going to bring out the truth about women in the church right. and it's an act of feminism, yeah. like feminist scholarly. Teabing as a woman is super interesting. Judy Dench is teabing is oh. awesome. <laughs> yeah. Because um, teabing's a knight. Judy Dench is literally a literally dame. Literally a knight. She's done that. Know how to act around the queen. So that's a good one. Uh, other worst moments, Landon, Langdon's claustrophobia. I'm like, I don't know what the point of this is. So right, he doesn't like small spaces. We usually just find out he's claustrophobic in the books, but like the deep flash of like, and he was in the well for overnight and now the he's... Googling. Yeah, the Googleover.net. You know, I was mad at the Googling because in the book they go, to the, they go to the library and I had notes from my reading of like, I love that a librarian saves the day. Yeah. Like they go to the and library. She's a little feisty too, I remember yeah, in the book. She's a fun yeah. character. And then in the movie, he's like, I've got to get to the library fast, which mm. is like an excellent quote. And they don't go to the library because they Google a thing on a phone from 2006. <laughs> which is, they're like doing the alphanumeric keypad. <laughs> right, you press it three a times pope, to get to see. A night, a temple. Doesn't really work. <laughs> Pre-iPhone, interesting yep. to think about uh, yeah. what's going on here. Because they're, they're Googling is a thing, mm-hmm. and some people, like Sophie has to chat up this dude on a bus to, right. get, his, <laughs> to get, his, get his phone. His pre-smartphone. And it works. That That's not awesome. Oh, God, in the movie. Maybe my least favorite part. Who's got the drop on him? I think it's T-Bing has the drop on him. Mm-hmm. And these doves fly down <laughs> from the ceiling. And it's supposed to be God, maybe? It's a mess. It's a. Re- it's it's literally like, if I had a, a digital copy, I would go into 
<laughs> garage band <laughs> and, be and like, edit it. Just, just, just get I it never out. want to see this again. It's terrible. It is terrible. And in, you know, in the book, we get the moment in the car where Teabing is like putting something into Remy's, into the wine or yeah. cognac or whatever it is. They've got a flask. He drinks some. Remy drinks some. And it's this like moment of has he been building up an immunity to iocane powder? Like what has happened? And then we find out that it's peanut dust because T-Bing's got to kill yeah. Remy. Like Remy doesn't get much time on screen relative to the amount of time he gets on page in the book. And then he gets killed in an interesting way that makes T-Bing look smart. And all we see on film is just like drinking out of a flask. Just him dying. Yeah. yeah. In, in the docks. That's you, you not gotta poison well. people to docks. That's one thing I learned <laughs> about the underworld. If <laughs> you're going to kill someone, take them down to the water. Right. Yeah. If, if anybody asks you to go to the docks, oh, don't, go. don't go there. Nothing good is happening. Your life expectancy goes up by like nine years by never going to the docks. <laughs> right. Just don't go to the docks. Uh, anything moment. else? Let's see. Yeah, I think that kind that of that pretty much does, does it. it. I mean, this is a this is a bigger picture thing. I don't like the writing's not great. It's not bad. Yeah, the part of the problem I think of the movie is Brown's dialogue is very instrumental. Mm-hmm. I think putting it charitably, it's not bad necessarily. There's nothing really off putting, but it's not fun. The dialogue on itself, besides yeah, what they're saying, right. outside of the content of what they're saying, it's not angular or edgy or interesting very very little differentiation between characters in terms of speaking styles or anything else mm-hmm. like that I don't yeah love. and in the book you get the like dan brown's delight in all of this comes across on yes. the page very well and, it, and i think a lot of that's thinking yeah. and thinking to himself right. is it yes. this interesting with no one around right yeah it? right like i think that's really what makes these books fun yes. to read is you're, you spend so much time in langdon's head and then so much time with dan brown who's just like here are all these cool things I know. Don't you want to know them too? And like along the way, we'll solve a mystery. And that's what makes these, I think to, for me, so much fun to read is just the like, and we're going to go to this thing and then this other thing. And here's all these facts that you didn't know. And it's so cerebral and that's really difficult to film. And it yeah. just doesn't, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, let's do our favorite things from the, the, the property. Okay. What do you got? I just love, and I loved the book more than the movie mm. for sure. Um, but I do love how intricate the stories are. Like this is my favorite thing about a Robert Langdon story is that, is that like everything means something else. There's a code in everything. They get super lucky and everything like works out and they crack all of the codes and like nothing breaks. It's not like the car's battery never dies. Yeah, like it, it just all works out the way that it's supposed to work out. But it's like, you can feel how happy Dan Brown yes. is that he found all these pieces and he was able to put them together in a way that the characters it's like, it's like do something. Rube- Goldberg machine made out of the humanities. It totally is. <laughs> I love, I just love, I that, love that, that sense of like the, the feel of being inside the story when it's being told is really fun. I, I found myself liking the parts best where Brown was connecting language and history and art, like the song Royale, mm-hmm. the Royal blood is the Holy grail. Yeah. And also, I don't know anything about the history of any of this crap. Like I right. don't want to know at this point, like yeah. I kind of just want to have this experience yep. with it. But I found that very compelling that the Holy Grail can mean holy blood mm-hmm. and it's plausible without right. being overdetermined. And you can tell he went a lot, of, like the places where you can tell Brown did his homework is that kind of thing. And then where the rose line goes through what and what was buried where. Yep. And the very. It's really careful. Very careful and like proto scholarly without being too heavy handed mm-hmm. about it. Like 
it has that mousetrap feel of like these things are all put together in a very specific way. And I think that's part of the reason it became a sensation because we've had these kind of mysteries before where the gun and the train and the thing all meet at the same place and it's very intricate. But he was taking a completely different set of artistic devices, yes. a completely different color palette. What if you used paintings? What if you used history? What if you used the Bible plus history? And this, this new set of crayons he could do this kind of intricate mystery with was really exciting. And I think also we like the idea, and we know implicitly, and this is maybe a bigger point, for those of us who like history, humanities, art, literature, whatever, we know how deep the history is, but we also know we don't know it. And to be reminded of the embeddedness and of our lives of the church and art and the sciences and is like kind of thrilling yeah. in its own kind of yeah, way. You know, I, I find that very, I don't know, fun, fun, mm -hmm. not just fun, but like, I don't know, like a little bit uplifting weirdly. Mm -hmm. It's, I think it's really, it makes it exciting. Yeah. And I loved what you, the way that you were explaining that about that he puts it all together so carefully. He's thought about all of these things that are plausible that, I could believe, like, as far as I'm concerned, this is the, this is what happened. Seems, it, I, it all checks out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like Dan Brown researched it. I believe him. It's you, it's fun to just go along with. And I really appreciate that about these stories that he makes it easy to want to be along for the ride. Mm -hmm. Also, like it does some things that you don't expect. Like you think that all you're doing, you think that you're in a story about cracking codes mm -hmm. and that the thing they're trying to do is to get to the end with the Holy Grail intact, like first to figure out where it is and then to protect it. But along the way, you get like interesting twists. Like I love the twist that Teabing is the teacher. It's great. And it was so surprising when it happened in the book on my first reading. Like, oh, I didn't, I wasn't expecting there to be any twist at all. Like I didn't know that I was in a whodunit, you know, like mm -hmm. I thought I was going to find out who the teacher was, but that it was going to be just like a, you know, man in a robe hiding behind a thing in a corner. Like it was really fun to have that. Like if you're reading a traditional mystery, you know, there's probably going to be a twist. Like there's going to be a red herring. And then later on, there's going to be the actual solution in this. You don't know that there's going to be these surprises along the way. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, this person who's helping them actually wasn't helping them. He's been setting it up all along. Mm -hmm. He's the architect of the whole thing. I find like, I love to be surprised by a story like that. And teabing surprised me like Dan Brown consistently surprises me. Like now I know to go in being yeah. like, which of these people, is not what they pretend to be, but if I didn't know that that was the thing that he does, I think it would continue to be really fun. Dan Brown plays with an idea. He brings up explicitly the schemata, like you see what you want to see. Mm -hmm. And McKellen is so affable, so electric, and so passionate. And seemingly, you're at that moment in the book and movie, you are looking for an ally, yeah, someone who knows what the hell's going on, a safe space where you can go hang out and like go to the bathroom mm -hmm. and take a breath, and then you kind of see that you want, oh, the old, the old grandfather professor, he's going to help us. Bang, turn it around. Fosh, you think he's the bulldog? You know, he turns it around, helps a little bit. So I think that part, that part is really great. I should say, too, it's probably the most fun, I wonder, if the first 50 pages of the book or 25 minutes of the movie weren't so great. Is this a phenomenon? Because in the Louvre, um, Sener's body, he did this to himself as a great twist. Yeah, unbelievable. Right, that's twist true. That is a good twist. Whether it's in the cage, like trying to figure it out, that I think you get so much goodwill from that that it pulls you through all the crap mm -hmm. that follows. That if that scene wasn't so good on its own, I don't know that we have a thing. Yeah, because like, it is an unbelievable scene. The opening is really strong. And one that's strong in the book. 
And actually, I think a little bit better in the movie because yeah. you see the body and mm-hmm. the Vitruvian. It's just easier to picture yeah. the blacklight and all that stuff. And the, the whole stuff. thing where Sophie is tipping off Langdon yeah. that he's in danger and she tells him there's a message she's for him. She's great at that. Her she's, eyes are really good. Oh, at, like, yeah. She's very you know, knowing. Like, hey, trying to communicate like, something. Call this number. Don't yeah. let on that something's going on. All the stuff with the tracking dot, I think, comes off better in the book than the movie. Like, so you so get so. a little bit more about how they're trying to escape and get away. Like, the details are better mm-hmm. in the book than in the movie of almost everything. But that moment, like, the, just the, you're right. Like, the opening of this story is so solid that it, and, and you get enough surprises and enough like secret codes at the very beginning that you're like, okay, this is the thing we're doing. Yeah. I, 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 I there's something going on here. Mm-hmm. We need Langdon. It all kind of makes sense. And you can trust them. They figured out a thing together. I haven't really thought about it in this way, but I guess it makes sense that the book and Da Vinci Code is best where we're in the spaces where Dan Brown is a master yes. in a church, mm-hmm. in a museum, in a library. We're not as good when we're in a car chase. Right. We're in a police station. Mm-hmm. We're in a plane trying to get from X to Y to Z. Like the kind of normal trappings of a mystery thriller like this, they're there because they kind of have right. to be, but like, that's not where he wants to be in a locked cage yeah. in the Louvre. And I got to figure out how that painting connects to that sculpture. And we got to do it now. <laughs> do you think Dan Brown's house is just an escape room? That he doesn't want to leave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah, I think so. I think that's He's paid point. somebody to keep adding puzzles yeah, to right. it. Every time he just, cracks one, know, another one come appears. On, come on, man. What, what's our, you know, the crossword puzzle is actually a super elaborate, like cryptex night uh, that's also a painting. That's also a manuscript. <laughs> right. You can't get your breakfast. That dissolves. Unless it you... also doesn't. <laughs> I had forgotten in the book that the cryptex has another cryptex. Yeah. Inside. Oh, yes. Yeah. He can't help himself. Like, I codes think one on thing codes the movie, on codes. The one thing the movie does is it like strips like one layer of the codes off. Like, mm-hmm. there's one crypt. One cryptex is fine. Yeah. There's not this and this and the other thing underneath it, which is fun in the book, but I think from a storytelling, it does it move along. Yeah, well, I mean, the movie better. was already two and a half hours long. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so. I was surprised because the book reads so quick that I didn't feel like the movie was going to be that long. But there's just a lot of exposition. Yeah, it's so there's much talking. There's so much talking to get through. Uh, what else do you like? Oh, let's see. You know, I just love the general tone. There aren't, I don't have favorite moments yeah, yeah. in this story. It's very true that like, Outside of the first scene, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of mo- moments where they come on cable. You're like, oh my God, I got to watch this. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, like, we sort of were inspired to try this format for the yeah. show by this podcast, The Rewatchables. And one of the like things I was thinking about is this movie, like, we are fine to do this episode because there is not a shot in hell that they're going to do a Rewatchables no. episode about no. the Da Vinci Code. Like, this is not a movie that you just want to watch yeah. over and over. I think the book is rereadable. I was, but, had you read it multiple times before? No, I, I read, read it, it once. Too. This was my first time reading it since like 2003, yeah. and it was nice because I had forgotten enough of it to be surprised by yeah. some of the details. Like I remembered the big turns, sure. but the little details there was enough for me to be like, "All right, that was great." But on the second reading, it's more like appreciation for how Dan Brown puts it together than it is yeah. about what's happening. Because you know, the first read is all about the surprise. Yeah, all about the surprise. There's, so there's not. I have a couple lines. I'll give it to you. Okay. Um, the one I thought was really funny <laughs> is um, again, not surprisingly, most of these are McKellen. Um, they're talking about the blade as symbol mm-hmm. and how the chevron of their, their oh, jacket uh-huh. is like the more penises yeah. you have, the higher the rank. That's I a great, that was that's really a great funny. One. Um, I thought it was funny when I like when McKellen is arrested. I'm using them interchangeably now. And he's, he's not worried about going to jail for murder. Right. He's worried about the grail. Mm-hmm. And he realizes that Langdon hasn't destroyed it. He's so happy. But then he's like, wait, and he starts shouting to the crowd. <laughs> that man has a map to the Holy Grail, <laughs> right. which is just the kind of thing you would hear 
someone you think is crazy saves are yeah. being put in the squad car. Yeah, and it looks great on the movie. Yes. In the book, he he like Langdon explains that to himself as oh, Teabing's trying to set himself up for an insanity defense. Yeah. But he does just come off as like a wild man in the movie, and I think it's wonderful. He's so much fun. He's so much fun to watch. Some of the stuff in the book too is like. I can't decide if Brown was going for I'm just being ridiculous or if he's unaware of it. Like I wrote down, I had a whole section for like quotes that gave me side yeah, eye from the yeah, book. I have those two. Chapter 24 opens. Silas gazed upward at the Sanselpiece obelisk, taking in the length of the massive marble shaft. And I was just like, Dan Brown, what are we doing? What are we doing writing a sentence like that? It can't. You can't do that. <laughs> like, is that Especially accidental? Especially with an albino, like, right? I can't. And also, like, is it better or worse if that sentence is an accident? You can't. You can't do that. <laughs> Either way, the book is not. The book cannot handle no. that being on purpose. No, it's outside <laughs> of the ontological being of the book for that to be a double entendre, let alone a single entendre. I think that's close to a single. <laughs> like, entendre. How many entendre? I think it's like half an yeah, entendre. It's, like, it's, it's an aunt. <laughs> That's not great. Also, did you notice, like, this is a thing we used to make, well, we could still make fun of, um, the Millennium series, Girl with the Dragon, the weird specificity about some stuff. Mm. Like, we got the, 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 the kind of headlights on the Range right. Rover. <laughs> they, it's got great headlights. <laughs> right. When the signal thing about that chases, they don't use them. Right. Why do we, and then Why? which engines the plane has, like, weird details yeah. like that. I don't. I don't know you what You don't that need is. it. You and there's so much is. detail everywhere else in the book that maybe Dan Brown was like, maybe people want to learn things about airplanes. Yes, I don't know. The Rolls Royce 731J engine spun up wildly. I'm like, <laughs> well, I mean, that's a 731J. I mean, they really yeah. sprung. They could have gotten the H, the 731H, and that would have gotten there. I mean, who knows what's even on the K? <laughs> K's garbage. You know, the most unbelievable moment, or not most, oh, there's a lot of wait unbelievable a minute. Hey, moments. Oh, okay, you're just going to say that? Okay. There's a lot of unbelievable moments, but one that I really had a pause for in the movie is when Sophie is like finds the key that turns out to be for the Swiss bank account, and Robert Langdon's looking at it, and he's like, this is a laser-cut key, and he ha- it has these things on it. I was like, how, how does he know? He's like sitting in his ivory tower looking at symbology when he's not swimming laps at the Harvard Pool. Yeah, Bowl. what they know and don't know is very useful to Brown. Right. right? right. Like, so Langdon knows everything about Da Vinci. Right. Except Cryptexas. Right. Weird. <laughs> Literally everything. He was who his lovers were and all this stuff. But it's like the Vinci. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't have much time left. Mm-mm. So. Well, did you what, do you wanna, what do you want to cover? <laughs> did the book make you Google anything? Or the movie? You know, not really, I have to say. Some language stuff yeah. I was interested in. Um I feel like it's a bit of a rat king if you go down the Holy Grail situation. So other than that, I did a little Da Vinci, like, he was an interesting guy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's plausible. We have to talk about what an unbelievable name. Yes. I think also does a lot of heavy lifting. I think so, too. The Da Vinci Code is, I'm -hmm. I'm in. Don't know. I I don't care what it's about. Angels and Demons also, yes. Origin, rough. The Lost Symbol, little too on the nose. Also the worst one. Inferno, rough. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's okay, but it's like Da Vinci but Code is as, like differs right. by a factor of ten. Right, it's like Da Vinci is just appealing. I googled a few things. Yeah, okay, because in the book, there's a big deal made about how this can all happen. The murder can happen in the Louvre because there are no security cameras. It's awesome in the Louvre. Not true though. Not true. I was like, this is like 
sort of the ocean, like, does this mean Ocean's 8 is a lie? Like, mm. I went Googling, like, are there actually security cameras in the Met? And there, it turns out there's just security cameras everywhere. But conveniently, he wrote out the security cameras so that this stuff could happen in the Louvre. I also needed to know things about Harris Tweed. So I learned some things about Harris Tweed. And Robert Langdon talks a little bit about astrology. So I went to find uh, out Robert Langdon is a cancer. I don't know what That's that That's his means. sign. I don't know much about astrology either, but I understand that cancers are like very emotional or mm. sometimes like very soft on the inside and like crabby and hard shells on the outside. And Langdon doesn't square that yeah, way for okay. me. I don't think that Dan Brown thought about Robert Langdon's astrological chart. No. Uh, this one, in if we do this for others, will be a diff, more difficult choice. I think. Can you save the? Mm. You, you have to pick the book or the movie to save in a cultural Noah's Ark situation. A hundred percent. Not book. even close. Not even close. It's not even close. Um, if I get to pick fifteen minutes of the movie to go along with it, I think there are fifteen minutes of the movie that like would make make the book more fun. I find myself th- thinking that the movie is a fun supplement to the book. It I doesn't really stand on. Its I own. think I would be totally fine if the movie didn't exist. I mean, yeah, of course you'd be fine. <laughs> it's more of, are you glad there's at least a version of it? I don't... Is, it ver- is this versus nothing? Are you choosing well, this? Well, I'm glad I got to see Ian McKellen play Lee T. Is that, is that an, a, it does enough work that that is worth kind of the slog of the rest of it? I think so. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I think some of it's like the Louvre at night. It's, it's beautiful. It it's is awesome beautiful. to watch on a big, nice TV. Yeah, that's and I nice. and I found myself doing some like, how did they get permission to film in these places? Yeah, like, that's I, a good and point. I think they did film in most of them, except maybe the Temple Church. One of the churches I read, they did green screen stuff in instead because they couldn't get permission. But like, being in those historic places is beautiful. But just watching the movie is not, it's like not that much fun. It was kind of fun to be like, that's not how it happens in the book. And how are they going to pull this thing off and whatever. But the book, I, I think, is by far the better experience mm-hmm. of the story. And McKellen as Teabing is great. Like I would I would watch those 15 minutes yep. when they're first in the chateau with him. Yep. Like that's, and the first 15 minutes in the Louvre mm-hmm. and that. And I do kind of like when they're in the Rosalind Chapel. I like mm-hmm. that where the, all the priory kind of comes and grandma's there. Oh, I like, like that, that moment. I kind of like that moment. I like that ending in the book better. Yeah. It's like quieter. Well, and she just... Also, her brother is still alive yeah. in the book, so mm-hmm. a little bit more of that. Um, I found, you know, this is, look, I'm an ex-academic. I'm so sorry. There's nothing I can do about it. It's just who I am. I, thought, I found myself thinking about big ideas. Do you mm-hmm. want to hear my big ideas? I do. Think about the central tension, right? Like, what the two, what the what the multiple sides are trying to do, why they care about the Grail, mm-hmm. right? For Langdon and Teabing, the Grail to them means something, though they would do different things with it. And that is that history is more complicated than people say it is. It's polyglot, polymath, pansexual. You know, it comes from a different places, a bunch of different places. And it has no single meaning. History has no single meaning. Symbols have no single meaning. This is a symbol that's also here and here and here, but it's not stable or usable or really like, you can't codify it into a thing. Where the church, you know, the church, there's the church, there's the Catholic Church, Opus Dei, but that side is about, you know, Silas represents a single-mindedness. Things are this way and no other way. And anything that doesn't fit into this little box has to be police destroyed, silenced, or otherwise. And I found that part kind of interesting from a sort of humanity's point of view mm-hmm. that it's Langdon, a lot of times he doesn't say X or Y is true. Like an interpret he even gets in the book, he gets on T Bing for saying, 
you're interpre- interpreting the facts to reach your own conclusions. Oh, right, right, right. Which I thought was really interesting, mm-hmm. where Langdon doesn't actually make a lot of conclusions yeah. about meaning or value or how things should be or policy or whatever. He's more like, well, this can mean this, and this can mean this, and there's rumors and theories. But he never comes down on the side of saying, I'm interpreting this ind- you know, kind of indeterminate thing to be this or this. I'm okay kind of with the mess of it, which yeah, yeah. I found very liberating and meaningful I think, this time. I, And I think that's what Dan Brown is going for yes. in most of his books. Like most of the stories are, or many of them are stories about somebody hiding information that was in, like they intentionally suppressed the information because it was useful to the group in power yes. to keep that information suppressed and someone else would take over or would have power or would be no longer oppressed if they had that mm-hmm. information if it came to light. And I think Brown really wants that. He wants like information to be out there, out in the world, and that that's the character of Langdon. Also, like knowledge for knowledge's sake, understanding the multiple meanings of things for the sake of understanding multiple meanings of things, because it makes you a better yeah. thinker, it makes the world richer, you see things in different ways, and then you have the like the T-Bean character and the Silas character and all the people who are trying to either make this come to light or make sure it doesn't come to light, who are thinking about like their version of justice, of like what's correct and how to achieve it. And for T-Bean, it's drag it out, show everyone right. this thing, just bringing the knowledge into light will save the day and for the Catholic Church, it's like this would be disastrous. Mm-hmm. And I think both like both of those are interesting ways to think about things and like what happens along the way of if the knowledge does come out and it's a disaster, does it ultimately improve the world or does it is it not good? Right. Probably for really, some it does yeah, and right. some are on the other side of it. That part I found really interesting to think part of the part there's the more generous my more generous reading of Langdon is be he reads as sort of dispassionate and stiff because he doesn't have desires mm-hmm. in the same way that the characters who are screwing things up have desires. He doesn't yeah. have malformed desires, which Brown writes as kind of no desires or like the barest yeah. inkling of a desire. Yeah, he doesn't have a horse in the race, really. No. Like He just gets caught up in this thing. He just likes the, the derby. Right. <laughs> you know, like he likes the whole, the whole thing is interesting. The particular who wins and loses this race is, right. it's just part of, there's going to be other races and other things have gone on. Yeah. Which I think like that makes the ending kind of interesting, like that he's going to complete the grail quest. He's yeah. going to go and figure out where Mary Magdalene is and kneel at the grail. Like, but why is he doing this? And I think it's sort of in a, I read that as tribute to like Langdon doing the like, okay, this is this beautiful secret. Right. It's this beautiful story. The codes are really beautiful. People have gone to a lot of trouble to mm-hmm. to both tell this story by hiding it in plain sight and also to protect it and let me go and do the thing. But it's not like a holy moment for him. Like TV no. kneeling at that grill would would be a completely different. Yeah, it's almost like he's paying reverence to the whole human effort right. that got it to that point, right? right? Like right. that Magdalene is there, but she's mm-hmm. more represent the meaning people have invested in her yeah. over time than like, mm-hmm. I mean, cause let's be honest, a DNA test of what proves what, <laughs> like say they found that whatever's in that thing and it does go to, to okay. Right. Sophie's so related there, to her. That's right. Mary Magdalene. Like right. we have all these documents, like none of this proves anything. Like that's the thing you kind of have to mm-hmm. disbelieve is like, if this came out and like the New York Times got the whole room full of crap that we would be like, you know what, guys? Darn it. This lady is Jesus Christ. 20. Like that's this, nothing. With, just There's no way that matters. Yeah, so it like, wouldn't. The thing, I think the thing, like that, that's why that's an interesting MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. Like it's important enough for you to care about and you understand what other people care about. But it's really this layering and connection and meaning that I think Dan Brown and the reader ultimately find 
kind of interesting and in a way is even more radical than like Jesus was de- mortal. Yeah. It's like, when, actually, you know, all this crap we told about the church and Western history mm-hmm. and it's all kind of made up and enforced. And, and everybody has an agenda. Own. Yeah, like, that's right. That sort of reminder that everybody has an agenda yeah. and how history gets presented has to do with people's agendas. I think it's really a central part of these stories. That's interesting to see. And I think it also hinges on like the whole story hinges on the reader believing and all of the people who are trying to keep the secrets secret, believing that if they did come to light, it would be a disaster. The church would fall apart. Like this is not how humanity actually works. Like when you super believe something, even if you're presented with disconfirming evidence, you are going to continue to believe the thing most likely. And so Mm -hmm. like the church probably wouldn't actually fall apart. Like what needs to happen is the Catholic church needs to employ the thinking fast and slow guys. Well, I mean, because you think this is written before the breaking of the massive scandals in the Catholic Church right. about sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. A bigger scandal than something like this would ever be in terms totally. of trust of the church. Right. And damage of the church, but would you say it's... Not a body blow. You know, it's not yeah. a mortal wound. Yeah. So these institutions and ideas are more durable than this MacGuffin really mm-hmm can handle. Right. I, the, the one that came back to me, and I don't remember who said it, is, I think it was Silas saying, you know, I serve the one true God. Mm-hmm. And, and Langdon serves the many possible whatevers. Like, they're yeah. really on other sides of the, yeah, there's a lot of possibilities. And I found that pretty cool. I think they overplay the monstrosity of Silas's physical being mm-hmm. and underplay the monstrosity of that idea. Yes. Like, I think that would have been much more interesting if it's like, he's a monster of an idea right. rather like, than a sort of a monstrous A person. lot of this story is about that zealotry is dangerous. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah, and right. that doesn't come all the way through in the movie. No, no, it doesn't. And then, like, the lair- like the Council of Shadows and, like, who's who in the church, it's like, it be- Silas has to carry a lot of weight for not being the church, but related to the mm-hmm. church, and also bad, and also smart, and also a tool, and also whatever. <laughs> like a lot of the a lot of the narrative work kind of gets dumped in this one particular character. Not impossible to do. Um, it's a high wire act, though. yeah. And some of it is he is so monstrous that what you're doing is replacing sort of this monster Silas with his very urbane erudite T being right. Right. You you see what you want to see. Clearly, he's the monster because mm-hmm. he's an albino. When really it's him being manipulated and the person manipulating him being manipulated, which is interesting too. All right, we got to wrap up. Last last thoughts. I'm glad we did it. I was going to do you like the Da Vinci Code as a property more or less after doing reading oh, it, looking at it again, talking about that's it. That's a good way. question. You know, I think I like it more because my Dan Brown love largely lives on from the joy of having first read this yeah. and having first read Angels and Demons like a decade ago. And then I've read all of the other ones and it's mm. fun to revisit the tropes. Like how many times are we going to see the Mickey Mouse watch? Is Robert Lincoln going to swim laps? Like, is he going to be claustrophobic? You can sort of do a like mm-hmm. by the numbers grid of what's going to happen in a Robert Langdon book. But to come back to the ones that were like the original, ah, oh, this is really fun and remember yeah. that experience was, I thought it was really fun. Yeah, it reminded me too that the fun is what did Dan Brown learn in the library right. that he connected to other things he learned in the yeah, library? Yeah, like honestly, I would just replace the Robert Langdon reading experience with like a weekly podcast of Dan Brown being like, here's I what that would be like. 20 minutes. I did think about that. I was like, 
the mystery thriller is clearly one of the reasons of bestseller because it's a fun read. Right. People like that. Like, it's a good. Frame. Is there any other vessel to which we can pour in, like sort of what Dan Brown wants to do, like the kind of synthetic humanist thing? I, I can't come up with a better one. Yeah, no, I think the story is a really great vehicle for it, and it reaches a lot more people. Like, yeah. I would subscribe to the Dan Brown podcast of ten things I right. learned about art history this week, and so would you. But like, yeah. he's getting us and our moms and our moms' book clubs and your uncle, like everybody who read one book in the entire year of two thousand. And three read the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> right. Like you get a much wider audience for that that idea. And if you go to like, why does Dan Brown write books? I think it would be like my guess would be he's writing books because he cares about this idea that there's more than one story yeah. and that there's more than one way to look at the world and that zealotry is dangerous and that history isn't just the way that we've been taught history mm-hmm. is. And he's trying to open people's idea, open people's minds to that idea through this character and through these stories. And like that's a big ask. For yeah, a book to do at through all. mass yeah. market popular entertainment right. may be as difficult to task as there is right. in culture to try to do yeah. something like that. I think that. it takes itself seriously in a way that like this book could could not take itself seriously and it wouldn't be as much fun. Yeah. Like it benefits from the fact that Brown clearly thinks this is important. I think that's a really nice way of putting because the 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 cockamamie with the whatever's strains credulity, mm-hmm. but somehow it still feels serious. Like it still feels like there's a a core to it that's not just fant you know, sort of humanist fantasies or some kind of misreading of what's going on. I think we can end it there. I think so too. Podcast at gmail dot uh, po- uh, <laughs> podcast at bookride dot com. Tell us your Dan tell, Brown. Tell feelings. us your Dan Brown feelings. Tell us what you thought of this. We might, if you like it, we might do another one. Might do more. Might suggest one to do. Um, we have a couple of ideas. Um, that may or may not be about fishing. Um, Rebecca, this was fun. Yeah, this is great. Talk to you next time.